Hey, hey, everybody. This is Devil Details. We are coming at you with a bonus episode. We got to sit down with Hillel Levin and we just talked with him so much and we wanted to make sure that you guys got to listen to every single bit of it. Yes. So we had the great honor to speak with Hillel, the acclaimed author of In With the Devil, which the show Blackbird is based on. And Hillel gave us a great insight into both Jimmy and Larry's story. And not only that, but he talked to us a lot about some of his other works. He co-wrote a book with Robert Cooley called When Corruption Was King. And he also wrote a book about John DeLorean called Grand Delusions, The Cosmic Career of John DeLorean. So we talk a bit about both of those. It's a really great interview. I hope you guys really enjoy it. It was a lot of fun to talk to him. Yeah, it was such a great honor to have him on our show. We are still in disbelief that we got to talk to him. It was a really big deal for us. So um, first of all, thank you to Hillel Levin for doing that uh, for us. And yeah, we hope you guys enjoy the full interview. Yeah, Hillel Levin, thank you so much for joining us. We're just really honored that you uh, came on and... uh, and wanted to talk to us today. So we really appreciate it. Thank you. How are you doing? Happy to be here. I'm good. Thanks. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we uh, we both have read the book, In With the Devil, and uh, right. really enjoyed it. We read it last year, and uh, I kind of have skimmed through it since then, but it's... Uh, okay. Um, it's more than what a lot of screenwriters do. You know. <laughs> When they get the rights to your book, uh, we actually had a screenwriter on this project who never read the book. Really? On this wow. one? On this book? Interesting. Yeah, exactly. Well, I wonder why it didn't work out for them then. <laughs> yeah. Well, I enjoyed the book. I, I liked okay. it. And so it makes me even more excited to watch the show now knowing what the book was about. Good to hear. Yeah. Um, so I guess we're just going to jump in. We have a bunch of questions for you. Um, so... First of all, how how did you become involved with Jimmy Keenan with with writing his story? Well, I, I was introduced to him by someone who's kind of a prison concierge. Mm. Uh, he works for um, a lawyer who specializes in sentencing. People don't understand that a big part of someone who's gone through the legal system is just not the trial, but when they get the sentence. And if they have a really good lawyer who specializes in that area, it can sometimes help them reduce a sentence and also have some input on where they ultimately want to go. And this individual also advises you on how best to deal with uh, life in a prison and what to expect and all these other things. So he uh, had talked to me in the past about some of his other clients and he was the one that introduced me to jimmy once i learned the story i have an agent in uh new york who's a literary agent who works with books and i have an agent in la who um represents books for movie and tv projects and this actually became a movie and TV project before it became a book. Oh, okay. Um, That's interesting. And at that point, I was writing articles for Playboy, and I could do a piece for them 
that then would be the basis for a book deal or a movie deal. And the original movie deal was going to be with a producer who had produced a movie called The Departed. Oh, yeah. Okay. And when was that? Uh, This is now 2008. Okay. Well, it's been a while. Life in Hollywood. Yeah. (laughs) Everything moves at a snail's pace. Right. It's either very slow or very fast, it seems like. If you're you're lucky, it moves at a snail's pace. (laughs) And then um, they they brought in a screenwriter who just, like I said, never read the book. took him three years to write a script. Oh, wow. Nothing ever happened. On the other side, um, there was an actor who had grown up where that prison is in the book. I don't know how they're going to portray that prison in the TV series, but a very unusual place that was built in the same era as Alcatraz and Leavenworth and located in Springfield, Missouri, uh, because that was the center of the continental United States. So it was going to be the psychiatric and medical hospital for severe cases of prisoners, whether they were in the East Coast or the West Coast or Leavenworth. Uh, And that would be, you know, a, a convenient place to send them. And this actor who grew up in Springfield, Missouri, is named Brad Pitt. Right. So, so yeah. yeah, we did read about when this uh, project first came out. We read that that Brad Pitt was originally sort of yeah. signed it up to mm-hmm. to play the role, which yeah, was a long time I mean, ago. and and he took a real interest in it. And you know, I've learned in my other projects that can be as much as a curse as a blessing mm-hmm. because. <laughs> I mean, what you really want in a movie is a director. Mm-hmm. You know, that's more important than an actor. I mean, it, it sounds hard to believe, but the director is really committed. They're going to make it happen um, to the extent possible. Um, and until you get a director attached, uh, it's not going to be likely. But this was a project kind of on its head, you know, where you had um, a studio commit first to a big time actor and then to a screenwriter. But, you know, there was never really a director who could take charge, which I think was key to getting a good screenplay and everything mm-hmm. else. Right. So, you know, that, that was an unusual. And then it just, it went to different producers and it ended up, with someone named, um, I believe it's Richard Plepler. And he was, in those days, the head of um, HBO. Oh, okay. And he was the one who oversaw Game of Thrones, but, you know, most important, Sopranos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then AT&T bought HBO, and he decided he didn't want to work for AT&T. Um, but when he went to Apple TV, he took the book with him and I, you know, people don't know what producers do. I don't really fully know. I mean, yeah, it's a mystery. (laughs) No, here's an individual. I mean, they put together the right team, I guess. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. It, se- it so. seems like it for sure, just from what and we can he tell. Did, I mean, he executive producers who you never know about, and then they got this great showrunner, Dennis Lehane, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then you know, really got a very good cast. Uh, I know with you starting with Taron Edgerton, <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> he was what drew us in, Paul Walker Hauser. Um, my gosh, you know, uh, you know, going on to, uh, of course, Ray Liotta. Yeah. Yeah. And Kinnear is really kind of the hero right. of the story. So. Oh, yeah. And yeah, just they got these big, I mean, big movie stars for these roles. It's, yeah. uh, it's very cool. It's going to, I think, bring a lot of people to know the story. Yeah, I agree. So anyway, I, I, I you know, just to backtrack. So. I met Jim. I did that email. It was like a movie project. Then I had to finish the article for Playboy, which became the intellectual property. That's kind of like the the foundation of a movie or TV project. Um, and then spent a couple of years writing the book, which was kind of difficult. I, you know, to figure out. It's a, it's a complicated story. Yeah, definitely. Um, and and you not only did you work with Jimmy, but you also interviewed Larry Hall for like the that half of the at, story too. At one too. point, I I did manage to get through to him. Um, and so you know, about a third of the book is Jimmy's story, which I think is very compelling, mm-hmm. and Larry. people will find fascinating just his own history and why he felt he did need redemption. And the relationship with his father, which was really key, uh, you know, it was played by Ray Liotta mm-hmm. in the series. Yeah. And then I, I felt my responsibility also was to fully understand Larry Hall outside of, you know, his relationship with Jimmy. And this whole issue of serial killers, which to my surprise, you know, really has not been dealt with very well in popular culture. Right. You know, people know about Dexter and Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. So, Hunter and mm-hmm. has nothing to do with serial killers. I mean, absolutely nothing. These guys can come in, the local police, in the case of Larry Hall, not only didn't catch him, they thought he was innocent. They were going to, testify in his defense wow so they know nothing of it's like saying if you have a murder in in a you know a jurisdiction for a lot of police that's like saying uh, a serial killer did it it's like saying a ufo landed in your backyard right so why why is law enforcement so it, it just seems like they're very against assuming that it's a serial killer why do you think that is you know, basic law enforcement, uh, homicide investigation, it kind of starts with concentric circles around the victim. Mm-hmm. And I mean, literally, it starts with the family and it extends to the friends and then it extends to the friends of friends. And then it goes out further to someone who could possibly relate be related in terms of in the same place at the same time, you know, a a first date, um, you know, that kind of thing. 
So their discipline is really focused on finding that individual related to the victim. And then very often they just develop what they call tunnel vision, mm-hmm. you know, which is laser focused on, you know, this was the bad boyfriend. Everybody hates him. Parents don't like him. You know, maybe he's got some kind of dicey personality. Uh, in the case of one of uh, Larry's victims, there was someone who was in the same vicinity as the victim, you know, the night she was abducted and killed. And he was a muscular black guy. Uh, he was a thief. Nothing in his background, however, said that he was ever guilty of sexual assault or murder or anything. But the police in that town really did not like him. And he was a pretty convenient, and he had a girlfriend who was working in the cafeteria where the victim was a college student was working. And, you know, it was that confluence of things. And that night he had uh, stolen some copper. And, you know, so you had a few phone calls and that happened to converge. And as far as the police were concerned, that all kind of incriminated him. And Mm -hmm. ultimately he probably received a much stiffer sentence And the judge, when he sentenced him, said, we all know what you really did. Because at that point, they had, and they never had any real evidence against him for uh, abducting and killing that that, uh, girl. But the implication from the judge is, we all know what you did. They can only charge you. got a real, like, 12 years, 12-year sentence for stealing a lot of copper pipes. Wow. But that's typical. I mean, you go... If you research other serial killers, almost invariably, some innocent person has been accused of the crime. And in some celebrated cases, like one here in Illinois, uh, those people who were landscapers in the vicinity of where the young girl died were on death row and really close to execution. Um, and the serial killer is not unlike Larry, by the way, even talk like, talks like him. You know, the DNA proved that, in fact, he was the one that did it. Um, and again, you know, some of these prosecutors and unfortunately the families are so invested in those initial investigations that they can't believe anyone else did it. Right. And they, it's not unusual for them to really resist turning over DNA evidence to prove who the real killer was. But fortunately in this case, they did. And those two people were ultimately, you know, released. Right. And so with, um, with Larry Hall eventually getting charged, he only got charged with kidnapping originally and got sentenced just for that. Why do you think, first of all, why did it only go that far? It's unusual and it's for ultimately it's fortunate, but you know, the way our criminal systems work, homicide is something that tends to be charged by the state. So if you're arrested in a state and guilty of 
you know, some part of that crime in that state, it's the state's laws that govern. And it's the state authorities that prosecute, you know, the local police, the local uh, prosecutor, the county prosecutor in, in many cases. So I believe that if the Jessica Roach, the girl he is ultimately convicted of killing, right. that if it had only ended up inside of Indiana, I don't think they would have ever convicted him. Because again, uh, the police and the, even the forensic people were really incompetent and the local police never saw him as any kind of threat. But what he did with this victim was he went over the state line. So she actually was in Illinois where she was abducted. And because he crossed state lines, it had the potential to be a federal case. And unless you kill someone for a goal of terrorism or a hate crime, you cannot be charged with homicide. Oh, that's interesting. So the most severe crime they could charge him with was kidnapping. And when I say that was fortunate, is that then you got involved of federal prosecutors who were really good. Um, FBI, again, FBI is not good with serial killers. <laughs> but, you know, they're still, they played a role. And it ended up being tried in federal court, not state court, in Illinois. And as a book says, I don't know how it's going to be dealt with in, in the TV series. The first time Gary, uh, Larry was tried, the case went to the appeals court, federal appeals court, and they threw it out. So he had to be tried again. But uh, nevertheless, I think, you know, it was still a better venue to try him in than uh, in Indiana. That's right. interesting. Yeah. And then he got, he was sentenced to life. Ultimately. Yeah. yeah. In the second, he was retried. So the first trial, they wanted to show he was a serial killer. And they really focused on this girl in, um, who was abducted on the college campus at Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And um, her body was never found. And yet there was an incredible amount of incriminating evidence against Larry. And he had somewhat confessed, like a lot of the serial killers. I mean, they live with this monster inside them and they, a lot of them do confess, then they pull back, they realize mm -hmm. consequences of their confession could get them killed <laughs> or executed. Um, but nevertheless, he said enough that really was unknown to anybody but the killer that could have got him executed uh, with that second case. So the first trial tried to show both uh, Jessica Roach in Illinois and this young woman, uh, Reitler in mm -hmm. Indiana, 
And then the second trial, they left out Rigler and just focused on Roach. Just to you get know, that yeah, conviction. Yeah, in the cornfield. Yeah. Not to overdo it. And, but again, the reason the case was thrown out was, you know, they had the judge was very strict about bringing in consultants who would say Larry had been coerced into a confession. Uh, and the consultant hadn't even interviewed Larry, but just looked at tapes and things like that, which is why the judge did not think it was some, he thought the jury could make up its own mind. And then Larry on the stand was not, I mean, he kind of showed his true self uh, in that first trial. Um, and that showed he was not some simple guy who was going to be rolled over. Uh, right. He was kind of smarter than people thought he was. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. I think that had an impact as well. The second trial, they didn't bring in that second case and he did not testify in his defense. Um, are there traits in Larry that are like something that you can find in in all serial killers or in most serial killers? Like, is there a lot of... Well, like I, I say in the book, you know, that of the you know, 24 or so traits that people find in the typical serial killer, you know, running those by Larry is like running uranium by a Geiger counter. I mean, he just like hits 14 <laughs> of them. You know, the number one, it's deeply organic. The worst killers um, have something related to a brain issue. Uh, very often it's, I mean, in a case of like the most famous serial killer in Illinois is John Wayne Gacy. Sure. Mm -hmm. He killed, I think, like 31 young men. And um, he was dropped on his head as a baby. I, Bundy, I forget exactly what his issue was, but he had another, I mean, it's, it's kind of fascinating how many of these people had um neonatal or you know just soon after they're born they have brain damage hmm. so yeah the bizarre thing with larry in many ways is he was an identical twin and he had he was a syndrome where his twin named gary so you got larry and gary mm -hmm. <laughs> was actually positioned in the womb in a way that he got more nutrition and more oxygen than Larry. And these um, babies often emerge with um, not looking anything alike. Is that true? That's true with Larry and Gary. Even though, even though they're identical twins, they don't look a lot alike. And that was the case with Larry and Gary. Gary was a little smaller, better looking, you know, Larry was kind of puffy and had a lot of acne as they grew up and people thought he was slow, uh, which was not the case, but had a different uh, personality in, in a lot. Uh, Gary's very gregarious, but when he emerged from the womb, he was blue and, and clearly there was some oxygen deprivation yeah. at that point. So that's something that ticks off we do know that a very difficult upbringing you know in poverty not unusual alcoholic abusive father 
expects a case, a smothering mother. You know, everybody thinks about psycho and right. two right. sides of that. There are abusive mothers who the serial killers basically want to kill the women who look like the mother. Then you have the smothering mother who pretty much makes it difficult to have a normal relationship with a woman. Right. Mm-hmm. They want someone who lives up to their mom, right. to the idea that they have of women. Yes. And, and definitely the case with Larry. I mean, this guy could do horrible things to women. And yet his on the phone, you know, other inmates and social workers would tell me, oh, sweetie, darling, how are you? I love you. All these other, I mean, which isn't that doesn't mean you're a serial killer, but there was <laughs> yeah. that element to Larry that was be above and beyond hmm, what right. people would talk about with their, their mother. So, you know, all these different socioeconomic issues, the biologic issues, you know, other inadequacies. And then, you know, you have this kind of condition that is, I mean, Larry uh, was very focused on werewolves. Oh, yeah. Did a lot of drawings and things like that. I don't know if he fully understood that. Again, I mean, this guy was really well read in a lot of ways. But is that is that the is that sort of the impression that you got from from speaking with him directly or just from your research? Yes, totally. And then talking mm-hmm. to people who knew him. Yeah. Uh, but the werewolf is a real good analogy to serial killers. Because at one point, they look, I mean, and again, this is where they're not Hannibal Lecter. A lot of them are, they're not Henry Portrait of Serial Killer. These are not weird looking people, which is why they're so dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, Larry had this little voice and kind of seemed pathetic sometimes in some ways, but certainly friendly. And that's why young women would approach them and they'd turn their back and he'd have a rag soaked in starter fluid, uh, which you used to put on, used to use to put on a carburetor to start a car, but which has a lot of ether. Mm-hmm. And that would incapacitate even a strong young woman. And, and that's how this one guy could take over. Now, he was not a weakling either. He, was, he had a certain amount of strength about him, um, as some people discovered. But nevertheless, the appearance was very meek and mild. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not unusual. But then, like the werewolf, you know, the other side comes out, and it is ferocious, it has no empathy, and can do horrible things. And if you look into the whole ideology of werewolves, they really think these go back to the Middle Ages where you had these noblemen who would start doing things like, you know, killing all the kids in their village and and being able to get away with it. And, you know, just you know, horrible mass murder that they did because they could get away with it. And and a lot of the stories, the original werewolf stories kind of spring from that history. 
you know, that is another element of some of these most dangerous serial killers. And the other thing really interesting about Larry is despite his shyness, uh, his awkwardness, his, you know, issues with women, they, a lot of these guys adopt this mask of, you know, what they see as being normal in society. So in the case of John Wayne Gacy, he had a little private construction business, but he's also involved in politics and he's known in his community as a Pogo the Clown. And he, (laughs) you know, dress up as a clown and do benefits. And, you know, Bundy would get involved in uh, party politics and believe it or not, like anti-rape groups and the colleges he was in. And again, some of it, this behavior helps them find potential victims. So it's not all just, you know, out of the pureness of their art. Right. But it's also this desire to be a part of society in a way that is still really artificial. I mean, so these people just don't know how to connect. And in the case of Larry, he got deeply into Civil War reenactment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, to the extent where at one point he wanted to look like someone named General Burnham, who was famous for the, uh, General Burnside was famous for his elaborate mustache. Yeah, right, that famous facial hair. And then he grew that, you know, to have Burnside's and then ultimately realized that the real general was like a lot taller. No. Well, uh uh, that's not good enough. You're too short. Don't even try. But he kept those uh, mutton chop sideburns. Right. Which, by the way, made him really recognizable. Right. Yeah. He's like, man, this guy would want to blend in with the woodwork. So it's kind of hard to, you know, make these things fit together. And yet they really are part of one person who really feels he's not fitting in with society and does these more elaborate, ostentatious things that can call attention to himself, you know. Um, Do you think that contributed to why Larry and Jimmy sort of were able to connect? Was that sort of a a similar thing? I think it was very difficult for them to, for Jimmy to figure out how to connect with him because he was so different. Mm -hmm. You know, this was not a guy into sports. This was not a guy, you know, Larry was, had a lot of interests that had nothing to do with Jimmy's <laughs> interests. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in addition to the Civil War uh, reenactment, he would also collect, you know, Native American memorabilia and um, believed, he and his brother believed that they were part Miami Indian. Okay. Um, I I don't think it's true. Uh, I certainly spent a lot of time trying to see if that was true. But in Indiana, of course, Indian. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> like so much of our area in the Midwest and the United States, you know. We've yeah, got that seems like a very American. Like, Native American name all around us. Right. Yeah. But, um, you know, in most states, people really don't identify with Indians at all. 
and hardly even know what the names relate to. But believe it or not, in Indiana, especially where they grew up, there was kind of a cool mystic thing about it. And um, the Miami uh, Indians, who were the prominent tribe in that area, were that unique tribe that said, okay, this is what we're dealing with. We got to act like the white man. We got to, you know, do everything to assimilate in society. And in return for that, they were removed like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And then when they came back to Indiana, they did not get a reservation like a lot of tribes. They got some money and that was it. But because there was no isolation or ghettoization with a, a reservation, they were very much tied into society. And a lot of people growing up, especially Larry and Gary, thought that it was really cool to be an Indian. And they would find, uh, you know, a lot of the arrowheads and things like that, which was another element of Larry's background that made him so dangerous is he knew where all these farmer fields were and all the woods were. Mm -hmm perfect places to bury people. Uh, but a lot of that was, you know, their two big hobbies were finding those arrowheads and finding discarded beer cans, which they collected, <laughs> uh, which kind of was kind of a big thing in those days. Not, you know, Budweiser, but all these brands that, you know, are no more. <laughs> so as a result of that, these guys were in dumps and farm fields and stuff that, you know, later gave him an idea where to bury people. So, but the Indian thing becomes really important to the story because it's not a blackbird necessarily that he's carving. Again, I don't know what the series is. Yeah, that's kind of still a mystery for us too. We're not sure where this blackbird. It's it's a falcon. I don't want to spoil things, but he's carving a falcon. And and originally... (laughs) We wanted to call the book A Falcon's yeah. Tale uh, before we came up with In With the Devil. So that was originally, that was the book's original title was going to be The Falcon's, Falcon's Tale? Tale. Okay. You know, and then that got converted to Blackbird. Uh, but the publishers thought that was too literary. They're like true crime people are not literary. But, <laughs> uh, book publishers don't have a lot of respect for true crime, unfortunately. Hmm. So they thought In With the Devil was what true crime readers wanted yeah. to read. I mean, it is very catchy. It's very it's a attention-grabbing. Do you uh, still keep in touch with Jimmy? Do you have a relationship with him now? or uh, We had a, a professional relationship. Okay. Not friendly. That I mean, I've written other books with other people. I, you know, I wrote this book. I think you mentioned, Sarah, that you looked at it called When Corruption Was King. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I, I actually listened to um, to the podcast that you talked about, too, the um, oh. the one that Jake Halpern did. Um, yes. I listened to that, which is a pretty good dive in, like a, a good update to, to Bob Cooley's story. Yes. And I just want to say, you know, I'm a professional journalist mm-hmm. and a reporter since 78 79 and to me there's a wall that has to exist Mm -hmm. i mean obviously we both want the book to be successful 
But like I said to Jimmy and I said to Bob Cooley, who when Corruption Was King is about, I'm not here to be your, I'm not your PR guy. Right, right. You know, my first responsibility is not to you, it's to the reader. Yeah, right. to the story. I, I really have to do the grunt work. First of all, exactly what you just said. It's mm-hmm. got to be a good story. Mm-hmm. Which both of both of these stories are for sure. I mean, with both with um, Robert Cooley and with Jimmy, it's, they're both really stories that definitely need to be told. I think, and and right. uh, there's a, an audience for them both for sure. Yeah, and I think the way you set it up with you writing it that way without that friendship, kind of, I think that is portrayed in the book where the story is the focal point. It's not fluffy or anything. It's the true grit of the story. And you got to take people where they don't want to go. Right. With Jimmy, where that was really, with both of them, kind of coincidentally, it was the relationship with the father. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was really hard for them. And it sounds like that really comes off very well in the TV series. But with Bob, it was so important. So the story of Bob Cooley, which uh, most people in the Chicago area do not know about. Oh, interesting. uh, Yeah. Is he was, first of all, people have really, and and there is a bizarre connection with Jimmy too, if you can believe this, but. Like a direct connection between their A stories. direct connection to... Oh, I definitely want to hear about story. that. So <laughs> but um, people in Chicago have no clue. They all talk about the mob and, they, and Tommy guns. Yeah. They talk about Al Capone, you know. Well, is the mob... Is there still like a mob presence, do you think, today? Yeah, no, not as much, mm-hmm. but... What people don't know about is in the second half of the 20th century, the person who took over after Capone and um, after, you know, the kind of other for just a couple of years, one one of them went, one of his successors went to prison. The other one, believe it or not, committed suicide. Oh, wow. People don't know about that. His name was Tony Accardo, and he was just incredibly smart um he started out as joe batters using a baseball bat to inflict you know whatever vengeance on people but in fact he became this really savvy individual and the smartest thing he did was not to become an out front flamboyant gaudy like crime boss Mm -hmm. most people don't really know him but he's really smart they totally controlled all crime in Chicago. I'm, I'm telling you, even a neighborhood poker game, if you didn't give them a piece of the action, you were in trouble. Wow. No, I'm, I'm not kidding. And w- once he had that enforcement, you had none of this families going against families. It was just like kind of one big happy family, let's put it that way. Very <laughs> much involved with you know, other ethnicities, the Italians ruled it, but a lot of other ethnic groups were very high up in it. And once, you know, he had that control, he went into the unions and he used Teamster pension funds to build Las Vegas. 
Oh, wow. So wow. Las Vegas was built by Chicago. Especially <laughs> wow. Las Vegas Strip using Teamster pension funds. That's interesting. But a key to their strength here in the city was they controlled in the city of Chicago, the Democratic Party in a suburb called Cicero, which people associate with Capone. It was mm-hmm. the Republican Party. I mean, obviously ideology did not matter to them, but they wanted the power to appoint judges. And then when the hitmen killed people and came before judges, the judges would find some technicality to throw out the case. So that gave them this impunity, which is why if you had the neighborhood poker game, (laughs) you really were scared. Or if you were a bookie or a car thief, you knew that if you did not play along with the outfit is what they called it here, not the mafia. Right. You could get killed and the killer would get away with it. So Bob was a lawyer who fixed some cases, got them to the right judges. And then because of the relationship with his father, who like Jimmy's father was a cop. Right. Yeah. And he was an honest cop. And as a result of that, He went nowhere in Chicago because the top of the police force here was totally corrupted. Right. Yeah. So if if he was not in with the outfit, then. Oh, yeah. I mean, the chief of of detectives here was a a mob guy. (laughs) So he did not go very far, his father. And then as Bob climbed the ladder, getting bigger and, you know, making tremendous amount of money, representing primarily, you know, mob guys in, in gambling cases. Yeah. Which that was probably uh, that father, was his sort of motivation was just like he his dad his parents didn't make money. His dad was just a clean exactly. cop. So he wanted to he wanted to make money. Yes. And he made a tremendous amount. Mm-hmm. I mean he gambled away a lot, but he bought restaurants, he bought a health club. Yeah. You know, he just didn't even he had more money than he knew what to do with, truly. <laughs> Um, because they all paid him in cash on top of it. Right. But then it was this whole guilt thing with his father. And he had some, you know, run-ins with them, but ultimately they wanted him to fix a case involving a policewoman who was beaten up. And he just did not want to fix it. He was, I'll take this guy, I'll get him acquitted, I'm not going to fix it but they forced him to fix it. And at that point he was so disgusted, he decided to wear a wire. He flipped. And he made these, ultimately there were uh, about seven federal cases. And it's not just that he got 20 to 30 mobsters sent away. Um, but it was like police officers and, mm-hmm. and people involved in the law that were also a citizen minority leader of the, of the state Senate. Yeah. Wow. The longest serving alderman, the only judge ever convicted at that point of fixing murder cases. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> it was that judge. And once they, and, and look, these guys, the mob guys are not stupid. And once <laughs> the hitmen knew, uh oh, the judges are not going to throw out the cases. There wasn't another hit for decades after Bob's cases, which they called Gambit. But, you know, the legal establishment hated him for doing this. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, 
what he did, which was with tremendous courage. And then he refused to do witness protection. Right. But he's still mm-hmm. he's still kind of on the run, sort of. He's not. He's still on the run. Yeah. I mean, I gave up a life of total luxury uh, in return for this. May I'm, I keep saying it's like the Catholic story because, <laughs> I mean, he's gone through the 12 stations of the cross and he grew up in this real, I mean, he's got a brother who's a priest, but he really suffered for doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. So it, it's an unusual case in, in that way. And again, you know, it's just, I, I would just say to Bob over and over again, it's like, you just got to say it all. I mean, you can't portray yourself as just a total hero, although in many ways he really was a hero and changed things for us in the Chicago area, I would say as much as anybody, Yeah. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of exposing this connection between the judges and the mob. Yeah. And, and so Bob Cooley's story, I think, do, do you think that would make a, like a good film? I know that they've kind of tried and talked about it, but do you, <laughs> do you anticipate yeah. them ever I, doing I something like they're doing Brad with Blackbird? Uh, okay. Mark Wahlberg. He's another guy, you know, that. So he's interested you in this. Your project associated with Mark. Because <laughs> Mark Wahlberg has a hundred projects. Sure. Yeah. So he's sort of Bob Cooley's Brad Pitt. They really don't care, you know, <laughs> that something is sitting there. I think it would be a great TV series. Yeah. But um, there was a point where there was the man who ran production for Paramount loved the book and nobody was good enough for it. Hmm. They brought in all these big directors. They rewrote the script several times. And every time they do that, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm, Of course. Ultimately, if Bob and I ever wanted to get the book back, we would have to pay to do it. So they just bury it. Um, But, you know, again, I hear people saying, oh, yeah, we know that would be a great uh, TV series. For me, what was so unusual and so good about that story was what got Bob into the mob's clutches and had them in return, you know, make him their lawyer was he fixed a case involving their biggest and worst hitman. And he found the right judge who had absolutely nothing in his background that would make anyone suspicious about him. But Bob knew he was an alcoholic. Bob knew he needed the money at that time. And ultimately, when all of this was exposed, he committed suicide, that judge. Right. So that the beginning of the book is Bob fixing that case and that whole thing not going the way he expected. So he literally, you know, the day the judge issued his sentence, Bob was headed out of town, (laughs) never to return. And then when that judge basically acquitted the killer, he and turned right around and came back. Bob <laughs> turned around and now he was riding high for a few years. Yeah. But at the end, his desire was always to go back and fix that. And you know what double jeopardy is? Mm-hmm. The, you know, which goes back to English case law. 
that no man could be tried for the same try, crime twice. Yeah, right. And have that hanging over his head. But by sheer luck, this ended up with this incredibly sharp judge here. And a lot of the judges here are not sharp. <laughs> this guy was. And he wrote this incredible decision saying, where he dug into all the, the English common law and said, no, the whole issue of jeopardy is that you have this anxiety in your head saying, I, I can't go through this again. You can't let someone go, you know, get tried twice. But with this hitman, he had none of that anxiety because he knew the case was fixed. Right. So the whole case really uh, in retrying him was predicated on Bob proving that he knew and everybody else knew that the case was fixed. So he never had the single jeopardy to live with that anxiety. He knew from the get-go the judge was going to throw the case out. Hmm. And it went to the Supreme Court. Oh, wow, yeah. And they ultimately oh. decided, yes, he can be retried. So it was actually a very significant case. But mm -hmm. then, you know, the whole case really relied on Bob's testimony to the jury. And at that point, he really had become a good witness. And that's where the book ends, is the guy, he gets convicted and sentenced to 300 years. Mm -hmm. it, you cannot, if I had written that as fiction, uh, yeah, it's it's crazy. You guys know, you know what uh, the whole movie baloney. You got to have an arc, and you know, yeah. start out here, and yeah. go here, and you know, look at the verdict, and how that, you know, all of that stuff. This was true. I mean, this guy's life, the arc, was just unbelievable. And and I I feel the same thing with with Jimmy Keene. Mm -hmm. I mean, there he had to see something in himself he had an experience i mean this was a guy who got into trouble because he just felt he was above the law and too smart to ever get caught uh and he could deal with the mexican drug dealers he could deal with the local investigators and always win and finally he gets into a situation where you know that's not good enough right i mean it did it did work for him for a yeah. while there <laughs> <laughs> and he goes through an experience, again, without a spoiler, that <laughs> forever changed his life. And, mm -hmm. you know, I have no doubt that he would ever do anything illegal again. Yeah. You know, after what he's gone through. So, you know, that that's his arc. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what what was the, the connection that you mentioned between Bob Cooley and Jimmy and their stories? Well, Jimmy, without even realizing it, was sharing a cell with the leader of the Chicago mob. Oh, wow. Oh. <laughs> and no, had no clue until I said, who? And a guy's name is Calabrese. And just like uh, Cardo, I mean, this guy started out as, the, the worst, you know, most violent, physical, bomb-blasting character, um, and then, you know, develop some sense of, of leadership and management style. But again, you know, for a mob that was a shadow of what it was under Ricardo, and then, you know, became fairly famous in Chicago because he was ultimately tried in something they called family secrets. 
and it was his uh, brother and son who testified against him. Oh, wow. And some other mob leaders and, and really closed the circle on some really infamous executions and murders that no one had, you know, everyone had a suspicion why these people died. But, you know, in this family secrets trial, it was made clear, this is who killed them. This is how we killed them. And again, you know, Jimmy was totally oblivious to that. <laughs> um, and the father, who he just thought was like a great father, again, this is all the father and son. <laughs> At a certain point, you know, when the son has to go to prison too, the father's like, you know, he's a young guy like you. You guys should be cellmates. <laughs> right. And so I'm going to yeah. get out of here and you guys will be cellmates. And yeah. Wow. New oh. one. But at that point, he gets transferred to meet Larry. Yeah. So that, yeah. And that's, that's in your that's book a, there. And I think that's yeah. like chapter two, I think, if I remember. Yeah. So I did not, you know, ever understand, you know, when I met Jimmy, I had no idea that those things would link up. You yeah. Know, it's like, what? Jimmy Frank Calabrese? Really? <laughs> yeah. He was kind of an important guy in the mob, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> having deja vu looking at this guy yeah. again yeah that's a fun connection <laughs> no i i hope that that story kind of comes into some sort of i don't know popular media again because it's it's fascinating i i loved reading about it i i also am very just personally interested in the story of john delorean which you've also <laughs> um worked oh, really? on before so if we can talk about that for a minute Okay. <laughs> did you see any of the documentaries? Uh, I did. I watched the Netflix documentary. I yeah. So I'm fascinated, and I. I you see what I look like as an animated figure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk about how you you uh, you wrote this book about him, and uh, and how kind of you ended up being involved in the story after a minute there <laughs> but i mean yeah. so first you actually you started looking into john delorean a long time before any of this yeah, drug stuff I mean, came my, up and everything my history is i i started out in new york you know writing magazine articles mm -hmm. and then um i was hired to be more of a senior editor writing bigger articles for a city magazine in detroit but before I left New York, where I worked for New York Magazine, I knew somebody who's, who, who had been working for him and said, you need to interview this guy. He's great. He's going to show all the big three how to do it. And I interviewed him. I was very, like all kinds of reporters, totally impressed and snowed under by him. Sure. I mean, yeah, he, at the beginning anyway, he had these big grand ideas that about building this car that was going to change the world. Mm -hmm. No, I'm very charismatic mm -hmm. and very... He was kind of a celebrity. Totally. Yeah. And, and in Detroit, he was God, mm -hmm. especially among mm -hmm. the auto press. Because he was interesting, you know, and he had these young wives, uh, totally remade his body and all of this stuff. And um, I, I have to say, I was kind of sucked into it. Sure. And was going to do mm -hmm. another puff piece about this. <laughs> he was going to build it. People may not know. He was going to build the, you know, what he called the, um, it wasn't just this very sleek car with a stainless steel surface and these gold wing doors. But it was going to be the first ethical car and it was going to have 
you know, fuel economy and last forever and mm-hmm. on and on, uh, all of which ended up being bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> and, pretty much. Um, I moved to Detroit at that point, and that article didn't run because Esquire was running an article and, you know, New York Times was running an article. And <laughs> all the, obviously, the individual introduced me to him was, you know, very locked into the media in, in New York. And uh, I get to Detroit. I'm working for this little city magazine. And then this executive calls me up and he's like, look, John is trying to do a public offering. But all the stuff he talked about is not what he said. You really need to look at this public offering. Mm -hmm. And um, I looked at it and I saw that there were these companies that seemed like they had the same name as the DeLorean Motor Company. It was called DeLorean Manufacturing Company, headquartered in Detroit, in in, uh, Michigan. And I could go and get these papers, you know, unlike Delaware, that actually had financials. And just to cut to the chase, there were these three stories about him getting into these other businesses where he did things that were not just unethical, but totally illegal, but really stupid. I mean, where this guy was handed the best aftermarket auto invention of all time that should have made him a super fortune. And instead, he like stole from the inventor, didn't even know how to get the thing up off the ground. Right. And so each of these companies, and and there was this very bizarre character who would like be his doppelganger named uh, Roy Nessif. Just be, again, beyond fiction. <laughs> who would come in, throw everything, kite checks, just, it was, DeLorean was so slick. This guy was so coarse. He'd grab tablecloths if he didn't like the food. It would cut the cloth <laughs> off and the all drama. The I mean, yeah, this guy was nuts. <laughs> You know, DeLorean had that whole other side to him. But the biggest issue was that I found this payment that the car company made using British money that went to one of those Michigan businesses. I mean, in a very overt way, like it had assets of 600,000 one year, 14,600,000 the next year. Oh, my God. And then I looked in the IPO. I mean, people always think that these people are so smart. You look at the prospectus <laughs> and it's like, oh, we made this payment to this company called GPD for $14 million to do various engineering services for us. And GPD was like a mailbox. <laughs> so, but, you know, I wrote for a city magazine in Detroit that had the circulation of 30,000 and nobody really paid much attention to it. And the major newspapers in Detroit, which had excellent auto writers and the Detroit Free Press and the Detroit News, totally ignored everything I wrote. And a year later, he's caught with $20 million of cocaine. And wait, John DeLorean? And, you know, the company was at that point going down the tube, Mm -hmm. which, you know, again, nobody really reported on for a number of other reasons. And then it was like, wait, whoever this guy is God, like whoever said anything bad about him. And it was this little reporter for City Magazine. <laughs> right. And so I was on 
Nightline, and then I was on the Today Show with Brian Gumble, and then you know there was an auction for a book for me about him. So that probably that got his attention, and mm-hmm. he didn't, yeah. didn't and, want you to be writing then, this stuff. But he actually set me up with drugs to get arrested. Oh. And so the and I could did not put that in the book by Viking Press because they were so scared of making him mad and they didn't want to make it look like I was writing the book out of malice. Right. Yeah. So I really appreciated I could finally tell that story. And fortunately, they just were so heavy handed in the way they set me up. Mm -hmm. Uh, They ultimately dropped the charges. Yeah. My goodness. That must have been a crazy crazy. story. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Have you did you watch the movie that they made about John DeLorean? It just came out a few years ago. Um, called Driven. Yeah, I heard about it, okay. and you know, I I really know a lot about the story, and sure, sometimes yeah. it's really mm-hmm. hard to sit through these things. I yeah, I can <laughs> understand that for sure. Yeah. That's just that's just what originally sort of drew me into the story, and then I you know found found your book about it and everything. So yeah, you I mean they they really try. I mean it was kind of from the vantage point of this informant. Who, like a lot of informants, these guys are can be scumbags. Sure, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and again, the story with DeLorean, who ultimately was acquitted, not just in L.A. for the drugs, but in Detroit for all the things I wrote about. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the more significant case for me. Mm-hmm. I think there was something of an argument about, about him being entrapped for the drug. But the flip side of that whole story is that they attracted two heavy-duty drug dealers who would have never gotten involved in the sting if DeLorean hadn't been there. And one had a fleet of planes and ships. I mean, the guy was a major deal mm-hmm. who ended up going down over it. Wow. And his assistant, who claims, you know, he's found God and was never such a bad guy, you know, was pretty instrumental in the whole thing, too. But... You know, so that's where ultimately dealing with these informants and even bringing in someone like DeLorean can, you know, pay dividends for you. But the trial in Detroit, he should have won. I mean, he should have been convicted. I mean, they just had so much. And the lawyer, Howard Weitzman, a great lawyer who did both cases, was using somebody at that point to pick jurors. And this was really the test case for how they picked jurors for OJ. And she was very clinical about advising them um, to make sure they only got people with high school educations because the charges were so complicated and financial. And 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 that really ended up paying dividends for them in Ultimately, I found out the jury split between the two or three people who were college educated, who did understand, you know, what they were listening to. And the prosecutors were horrible. I mean, they put the jury to sleep, you know, with the opening Mm -hmm. statement. I'm not kidding you. The jury had fallen asleep by after lunch. Oh, boy. (laughs) Uh, So they were not dynamic, let's say that. (laughs) Unlike Howard Weitzman, who was really dynamic. And who said, like, you know, this is Ed Meese and Ronald Reagan going after this innocent guy they just want to make an object of because he's a liberal, which wasn't true. He's not such a liberal. And 
hardly hired any black people his entire career. Oh, well. But, um, you know, but that that's the jury he was playing to. And then the judge made such a complicated case in his instruction that even the college educated people didn't understand it and thought they had to vote with the majority on the jury. I mean, that's how confused they were. And the prosecutor at the end of the trial could have pulled the jury to say, okay, now everybody stand up and say guilty or not guilty. And if those college educated people had been polled, the three of them would have said, we think he's guilty and we, we're not happy that we have to vote with the majority. But the prosecutor was so blown away by the verdict that he never bothered to pull the jury. So that didn't come out until, so there was a lot about DeLorean that he was really lucky with. Yeah. Sounds like. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you know, his lawyers, because he would never pay his lawyers, sued him and got everything that he owned, including the rights to his name. So at the end of his life, he didn't even own the rights to the DeLorean car in the movies and back to the future. Yeah. So um, he didn't die all that happy. Hmm. That So that was the justice, you know, but he, he certainly should have gone to prison. Right. Um, we've been talking for a little while, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but just um, so I know that you said you don't, <laughs> you don't uh, like sitting through things like that, but are you, are you planning on watching Blackbird at all or are you looking forward oh, to yeah, it? Yeah, I'll okay. watch it at some point. You know, for sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Sounds good. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, is there anything else that you want to like uh, say, or is there any um, like future projects, projects that you're working on that you can talk about at all? Or is there? Well, not much, but it's, uh, you know, I've dealt with some cases that have been where people have been wrongfully convicted, but uh, I have come across a case again in Indiana that's the worst I've ever seen. Oh, wow. So, you know, and I think people are really fascinated with cold case investigations, but this Mm -hmm. was a cold case investigation that cleared the killer and put an innocent man in prison for 40 years. Sounds like an interesting story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's the current one I'm working on. (laughs) Right on. We'll look forward to that. Yeah, we'll definitely have to look out for that when things come to fruition for that. But yeah, thank you so much for for doing this with us. We really appreciate it. Okay, no problem. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you for writing such a great book. (laughs) Okay, glad you like it. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, Halal, for speaking with us. We hope everyone enjoyed listening to Halal's insights on these stories. Yeah, it was really great to talk to him. For more of Halal Levin's work, obviously, if you haven't already, we recommend you read In With the Devil, which he co-wrote with James Keene, and that has been adapted into the Apple TV Plus series Blackbird. And for more of his books, check our show notes. We've linked to his other books that are mentioned in the interview. And yeah, that's it for us this time. Thank you guys. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.